start. Thank you, Saroosh. Thank you. Uh, it's for her or for me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for both? Uh, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, dear Alexandra, and thank everybody, and good afternoon to everybody. As she indicated, I have got a little throat problem, so I have to speak in a, a tuned-down voice. My voice is always soft and it becomes even softer. <laughs> so you have to prepare your ears to, to get my voice, you know, and uh, um, to, um, to, to have a good communication. Yes, as it was indicated and as it is circulated, I'm going to speak about shame as a sentiment and as an emotion and perhaps as a virtue. I say perhaps as a virtue because it is very well known in the history of uh, moral philosophy that philosophers, at least most of them, following Aristotle, have not considered shame as a virtue. Aristotle in his Nicomachean Ethics, which is a well known book, and uh, uh, it is an epitome of all uh, you know, moral thinking, there actually, although he gives two opposite extremes for shame, but he doesn't consider it as a virtue. All virtues, as you know, according to Aristotelian ethics, have got two opposite extremes. For shame, you have got on the one hand shyness, and on the other hand rudeness, and uh, shamefulness comes in the middle. But uh, according to him, it is not to be considered as a virtue. He doesn't give his reasons why he doesn't call it a virtue, but I think this has set the tone for the whole you know, Western culture to the present day, that shame is not considered a virtue, and uh, it is a shame that shame has got a, such a denigrated, uh, such a base place. And this is actually what I'm going to talk about it, it a little bit more as uh, something which makes a real distinction between the uh, perhaps Eastern culture and the Western culture, without essentializing, of course, but uh, it is good to be mindful of this. Now, let me uh, give you uh, my journey to, to shame. I do philosophy, but not, uh, I mean, usually moral philosophy, but um, here shame uh, is, is a very prominent, very important uh, uh, concept for me because of many things which uh, I think the gene genealogy of my thought may uh, you know, shed some light on why I am interested in it and why it is important to be interested in it and perhaps why it is important even for the cooperation uh, for which this center is, is set up. So it might also shed a light on that because uh, as I mentioned in my talk in KVE, a month or so before, there I indicated, I you know mentioned, I made a remark, uh, originally made by a Persian philosopher, mystic, that love is based on knowledge. You, when you do not know somebody, you cannot say that you love him or you love her. All these romantic loves and kino loves are just, I mean, fiction, because they are all based on ignorance. And therefore, love is, should be based on, uh, on uh, knowledge. Hate may be based on ignorance. You may hate somebody whom you do not know, and most of the time that he 
melt away when you came to know him or her. But love is different. No, on the same uh, model and by the same token, I would like to say that cooperation also is, uh, you know, something which uh, pretty assumes knowledge. If you do not know the, the partner, the person, the, the country, the nation, whom you would like to have a fruitful and productive cooperation with, so you have to know him, know it. Otherwise, the cooperation will fail at some point. So, um, shame is one of those things, one of those mirrors in which we can see the differences between the two cultures. And this will tell us a lot. First of all, from the very world, you know, that was perhaps my first motivation. Because, you know, in, in, in the Semitic languages, uh, I do not come from the Semitic languages. Persian is part of the Indo-European family, but nevertheless, it is, uh, you know, a mixture of both. Um, the word Persian for shame is very cl close to the English one, sharm. It says sharm. And I have got now a witness here, the, the, the lady coming from Heidelberg, and another one, the lady from Iran, who would, uh, you know, confirm it. Now, the word sharm uh, in Persian, and it's uh, equivalent in Arabic, haya and so it's a very positive term, very positive. Contrary to shame or dommage, perhaps, in, in French, which are very negative. And uh, that is why, that is why, I mean, for example, you say, it is a shame to do this. Shame upon you. I was ashamed for that. Such an expression, we do not have it in Persian, or you won't have it in Arabic. It means that uh, shame is something which has got a negative connotation. Usually, you use it with the word honor or dishonor, embarrassment, and things like that. Most of the time, people actually conflate it and confuse it with shyness. A person with shame means somebody who has got less self-confidence. Perhaps he's very shy, he cannot express himself or herself, you know, sufficiently. And because of that, shame is, as I said, categorized usually as something which we better overcome it, which we better you know, uh, uh, do something in order to eradicate it and to remove it. It is something which sometimes comes to us. Sometimes when we feel failure, sometimes when we feel some sort of frustration, then we become ashamed. But this is not necessarily the case in Eastern culture. No, I am talking to you from the Islamic culture, where I come from. Uh, it is not necessarily the case there. And that's why you cannot find, you know, a, an equivalent for the word shame in Persian or in Arabic or for the word sharm in Persian here in the Latin languages. And this has been the source of many misunderstandings, you know, in, in two cultures. Because I have seen the translations, I have seen the connotations, and I have seen some people, for example, talking about shame, including me, and do not get, you know, the, the positive or the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the right response on the part of the audience because of this miscommunication on the, on the world. So this is, this is one thing which uh, told me a lot about how two different people, two different cultures come to look at the same thing from two different angles, coming uh, to different consequences and conclusions, and, of course, categorizing the same thing into different 
moral concept for one of them is morally perhaps bad and in the other culture it's morally very good to the extent that it may you know be considered as the basis as the ground for all other moral concepts as I will come to it. The second is uh, the Arabic and Persian literature with which uh, I am I think I am familiar very well is full of the word and the concept of shame. Food. And uh, whenever you read it, it tells you a lot about the positivity, about the importance, about the, you know, the, the, the virtue, the, uh, what is it, the, the, its essence or the virtue, to the extent that a shameful person, and no, I am hesitant to use this word, because a shameful person, again, has got a, a negative connotation. A not a shameless person, let us say, not a shameless person is very positive, very admirable, and uh, you can find that uh, such a such a, a, a description everywhere. Whenever you would like to to uh, describe somebody with good qualities, with moral virtues, inevitably you have to include shame. That such a person is a person who comes with shame, who is familiar with shame, who is culturally and personally, uh, uh, how can I put it, shameful. But please put it in, you know, uh, inverted commas until I come, you know, to, to the main meaning of it in order to, to make it clearer. So this was the first. My second introduction to the idea was when I was, uh, you know, um, introduced to the book by Ruth Benedict. I am not a cultural anthropologist and uh, I did not have any interest in it. That was by an accident. But uh, that meant to me a lot. Well, Ruth Benedict is very well known and as I have uh, written in the uh, outline, 1946, she uh, published a book uh, on the, about the uh, Japanese culture the book was, uh, you know, commissioned by the uh, War Office of Information of Americans. It was, you know, motivated by a purely political and military, you know, uh, motivation. So that was written because the, uh, I mean, now I think that the Roosevelt uh, administration was much wiser than Bush administration. Because after all, they wanted, because they were at war with Japanese and they wanted to know the cultural differences between Americans and the Japanese and how to, you know, to, to manage the, the war. So the book was written and, uh, as you know, was published and very, very well received, both in America and in Japan. And it was, uh, it became one of the best sellers of the time. Uh, later on, of course, both Japanese and Americans poured, you know, their criticisms against the book, mainly because uh, Ruth did not know uh, the language, Japanese. She had never been to Japan, and her uh, main source of information were the prisoners of war in America, through translators. And because of that, of course, he did have very scant information, not very in-depth one, and uh, maybe his, uh, you know, uh, uh, conclusions uh, were not uh, very accurate. So that was, and then of course the moralizing the issue and implying, you know, between the lines that perhaps the American culture was superior 
through Japanese culture. No, her description of Japanese culture was that the Japanese culture is a culture of shame. And the American culture was a culture of guilt. Now, as I said, this is uh, something which has been harshly criticized by, by the rest. But to me, it meant very differently. I mean, let alone this post-colonialist literature, let alone, you know, the post-orientalist literature. Uh, I come from the East, and I think I find some element of truth in what Ruth Benedict did and said. Although, as I said, she was, you know, badly suppressed, because of the motivations, perhaps, behind the war. But let us not uh, commit the genetic fallacy, as it is usually said. The motivation and the motivated should not be, uh, you know, judged uh, alike. So you might have a bad motivation, but what you, you know, uh, uh, arrive at may not be necessarily bad as the motivation. So this is what we call the genetic, uh, genetic fallacy, anyway. Now, uh, <coughs> It meant a lot to me that, um, yes, the, uh, the Eastern culture is, is I'm, not, I'm not sure about the American culture, but the Eastern culture, yes, you can say that it is a shame culture. It is a culture in which shame is very meaningful, very prominent, very important, and at the basis of many actions, actually, and many reactions. And in order to know Easterners, you have to be, you know, mindful of this particular trait and uh, not to neglect, especially if you take the Western culture as something which is not all that familiar with the idea of shame. Now, the third, um, you know, motivation perhaps for me to take shame seriously was the absence of the concept of shame in philosophical literature, in the modern literature on philosophy. I think I quoted from Phil Hutchinson in what you have in the outline that he said philosophy as a subject should be ashamed that has treated shame so little. It has not given a proper place to the concept or to the emotion or to the sentiment or the virtue of shame. This is really very telling. It is very important. Well, right from the beginning of the Enlightenment, you, you have, of course, David Hume, the British philosopher, who did, you know, write a little bit about shame. Of course, he was very negative about shame. He didn't like it and he didn't admire it. And but just as a philosopher, he had to discuss sentiments. And for him, shame was, of course, a negative one. And uh, then, of course, there were a stream of philosophers, smaller philosophers, little philosophers, who did discuss it. But uh, in the modern time, especially 19th, 20th century, shame is virtually absent from philosophical literature. They have not paid due attention to it. That also told me, uh, again, something that uh, perhaps, again, we are, um, you know, after all, uh, witnessing a confirmation for the uh, Ruth Benedict, you know, uh, verdict. Shame is absent. Shame is not being discussed. Shame is taken to be so unserious that does not deserve to be uh, discussed fully and, uh, you know, uh <coughs> respectively. So uh, that was uh, another thing. I mean, only recently you have got Bernard Williams, uh, whose book 
shame and necessities, of course, uh, uh, like of a classicist, you know, uh, philosophy in the sense that he has mainly worked on the uh, on the uh, ancient Greek, you know, literature in order to pinpoint and to uh, position uh, shame in their writings. Uh, as I said, I mean, Aristotle is very, very brief on shame. You know, just two, three sentences, no more than that. But in the Greek literature, of course, you have got something about it. And uh, Hutchinson and, uh, you know, his uh, shame and philosophy, he says in the introduction of the book that uh, there is a panning on the expression here. Shame and philosophy, as the title of the book, means two things at the same time. It means, yes, he's going to, to discuss the relationship between shame and philosophy. And then another meaning is he's going to, to, to tell us that uh, shame has been oppressed by philosophy, has been neglected by philosophy. So not only the relationship between the shame and philosophy, but also shame and the subject, as a philosophy as a subject. So these are all very good indications that shame is, uh, is uh, you know, shamefully uh, neglected, uh, sorry, absent from the, uh, from the literature. Now, perhaps a fourth uh, uh, force or motivation behind was the idea of rights and duties. This is, again, another distinction which I have made for some time between the Western culture and the Eastern culture. You know, um, you should not be surprised, you know, I come from the East, my other is the West, whereas, whereas the, for the Westerners, the other is the East, okay, so if all this uh, sounds good. Now, whenever we think about uh, the other, of course, the Western culture comes to mind, and uh, with, with many ramifications and implications, among which uh, you would like to see what are the essential or perhaps fundamental or important differences between the two cultures. I mean, similarities and communalities, of course, aside, that is for granted. But there are, of course, differences as well. There are very superficial differences where the, uh, here, you know, you have science and technology and the East, uh, North and so on. These are, yes, but I mean, one has to go much deeper than that. One of those uh, cultural distinctions, if you like, civilizational distinctions of the, uh, the modern Western culture, of course, is the civilization of rights. And the Eastern culture, I mean, again, let me narrow it down, the Islamic culture, civilizational culture, is a culture of obligation and duty. This is very, very vivid and very evident when you go to this country, when you leave, these cultures and countries. You will see, for example, when a, a, a boy, you know, comes of age, becomes a mature person, this, we call the age of maturity, we call it the age of obligation. This is exactly the word that we use in, in Islamic culture. I think in Judaism you have got virtually the same thing. I am not sure, but definitely in the Islamic culture you have this word. When you become uh, mature, let us say, for example, for boys is 15 years old, um, you are mature enough not to claim your rights, but to know your obligations, your duties, and to perform them. This is very important, and that's why 
it was the Declaration of Human Rights that you know first uh, published here. But then, of course, a few years ago, people tried to draft a Declaration of Human Responsibilities of no avail because nobody actually accepted it and nobody admired it and received it very well. Whereas the Declaration of Human Rights now is universal everywhere and it's one of the, of course, main accomplishments and achievements of, uh, of Western civilization. Now, these two, I mean, concepts, duty and uh, rights, they have got their own advantages and disadvantages. On the one hand, the culture of duties and obligations is very well attuned to despotism, to dictatorship. You know, in a culture of, uh, and this I think has been one of the main pillars of Eastern despotism, to use Martian, you know, terminology. This Eastern despotism, one of its main pillars has been the uh, culture of obligations and duties. You are always under some duties. And because of the heaviness of the duties, seldom you can find, you know, a time or a chance to think about your rights, you see. And because of that, a right-oriented person gets born very late, you know. Most of the people usually are dealing with their obligations and duties, which is a good thing, by the way, but it marginalizes, you know, the rights. But on the other hand, in the Western culture, of course, post-enlightenment Western culture, you are mainly uh, engaged uh, with uh, your rights and uh, right claims, of course, and uh, to the extent of marginalization of duties and obligations. This has got its own advantage. Democratic politics is based on the rights culture. And despotic politics is based on the obligational culture. So it has got both, you know, its uh, advantages and disadvantages. Now, for me, as somebody who was uh, very keen on these differences and similarities, and also um, thinking perhaps of a way that um, gives us uh, some uh, escape route from the disadvantages of these two par paradigms. For some time I was thinking of a third paradigm in a Hegelian way, which at the same time is a synthesis of the two rights and duties, but at the same time it transcends both of them. Both are embedded in the third paradigm, whereas the paradigm, you know, um, transcend both of them. I was toying with some concepts. One of the concepts coming to my mind was love, which is a love paradigm with a, is a better paradigm than both either rights or, uh, or duties. But eventually, and for many reasons, I had to leave love behind. It's too strong a concept and too lofty a concept, you know, to deal with. You know, I know this is a very uh, important uh, you know, expression in Rumi, the mystic poet uh, of Iran, who says love is like lion. Lion may, you know, smile at you, but beware of the lion's smile. He may devour you. Uh, 
So this is really the, 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 the lion's smile. So for, for reasons, I had to, you know, uh, for, for the time being, uh, put it aside and think of uh, another country. Eventually I came to the shame. Now for me, shame is a fair paradigm, paradigm of shame. That can very well define morality, can very well, uh, you know, include both rights and duties, as I might, you know, um, uh, flesh it out, I mean, better later on, because I am already, uh, you know, violating my, my limits, and this is just the introduction <laughs> to my talk, but you are so keenly listening to me that I think that I can go on and on. Well, you can. No, 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 I, I am, I, I must be very ashamed if I violate. <laughs> yes, so, um, the third paradigm, which I think is, um, and I am working on it, and I have been working on it here in the Kate Hamburger colleague, uh, and uh, I hope that I put it uh, in a book, I mean chapters and things are already to some extent done and uh, well defined, and uh, when I leave here my days are numbered. When I leave here, hopefully I will, you know, put together all these informations and thoughts and, uh, you know, studies in order perhaps to produce a book on the third paradigm, shame, I mean, tentatively the title. Now, uh, this is uh, what I am thinking. So, through shame, you can have morality, you can have the paradigm of rights, you can have the paradigm of responsibility, and that's why I call my talk is shame and responsibility. So in uh, five minutes left to me, let me just, you know, after all this, which I have, I hope has been clear to you and clarified my intention and motivation and the journey to the uh, formidable concept of shame, to just, uh, you know, request you, please, I mean, remove the idea and the concept and the impression of shame the Latin languages that you have got in mind, that is not what I, you know, uh, think of it. And I, uh, you know, uh, it, it, is, it is something different, although it is, uh, has got a relationship with it. It is not, you know, completely cut off uh, from it. Um, <coughs> so, I was very <coughs> lucky that uh, in two, three, maybe a, a month ago, we had a, a colloquium like this in Duisburg University. David Chandler, you know, presented his paper, mine was later, and I think I mentioned to him that he was, uh, and I hope he were here in order to have a fruitful discussion. I mentioned to him that perhaps he was conflating two concepts of responsibility moral responsibility and causal responsibility. So that was actually not in his paper. And uh, I think because of that, some misunderstandings also did, uh, you know, arise. Even the word paternalism, which, uh, you know, seems perhaps pejorative to some people, he used it, you know, when he discussed, you know, Professor Poggi's paper which comes, I think, from the same root, from the same source. 
No, I would like to uh, just uh, bring up the same issue, reminding you that uh, moral responsibility is very akin to the word shame. Therefore, shame is by no means a negative thing, is by no means, you know, something which you can categorize it and class it as fear, as embarrassment, as dishonor, nothing like that. That is, and I think to, to call moral responsibility like paternalism is, is something which I think needs amendation, at least uh, as it comes to my mind. Let me remind you of, uh, of Pope's remark. When the child abuse, you know, became public, he said that the church and the Pope was ashamed because of the church's behavior. What is the shame here? Why he should be ashamed of this? Shame here is exactly not a causal responsibility because apparently he was not, you know, responsible causally for the action of some of the priests who did the child abuse. He felt that he should be morally ashamed in the sense that there was some failure, some moral failure somewhere, that if you do not feel ashamed, you have the same moral failure as that. Therefore, shame comes in when there is a moral failure, not only a failure. And also, shame comes in not only because of the public eye, not because you are being watched by others, Sometimes you watch yourself, and watching yourself, which is a higher order activity, that makes you shameful. That gives you, or creates, or produces the idea or the sentiment of shame in you. And that's why it is a, a sign of maturity, because, uh, you know, uh, this is, you know, uh, uh, I better, you know, leave it for the, for the discussion, but just to remind you, that when Hume, for example, says that uh, upon shame we are bifurcated, we are divided against ourselves. Even in Nietzschean literature you have the same thing. I like, you know, Gilbert Wright, you know, in his uh, concept of mind. He has got a very important, uh, you know, classification. Actions are of two types. The first order action, the second order action. Second order action is a sign of maturity of the personhood, of personality. And the first order action uh, is, is common between us and animals, other animals. But second order, like criticism, for example, it is a second order action. We criticize some other action. Shame is a second order one. You are shameful because of another action. And this is something which, if we lack it, and if we uh, do not you know, possess it, we have to think that there is a personal, fundamental failure. In, in our personality. So this brings me to the end, and just to remind you that uh, I found uh, Giorgio Agamben's remark very apt, that shame means uh, being uh, cognizant of oneself and being alert of oneself, you know, uh, failures and uh, accomplishments. Okay, I hope uh, this much is, uh, is enough for just triggering some observations and comments. Thank you okay, very thank much. You. <laughs> so, we have
15 minutes left for discussion and I would like to have it really open so if you have just questions on the terminology, on concepts, on the Eastern who is the Western <coughs> or others, please feel free just to ask what you would like to ask. Yeah. Okay. <coughs> very, very interesting talk. Um, and just in order to see what I really sort of got the, the, the main point that you that you were making, I mean you say that the <coughs> Western culture does not have sort of this concept of shame in a positively connotated way, but we we have it. I mean you mentioned it yourself when we talk about its absence. Uh, I mean. Shameful is not a good thing, but shameless isn't either. And if, uh, if, uh, if, if somebody is called a, a shameless person, or if somebody I'm associated with is acting in a shameless way, I'm ashamed. Uh, so, it, so it seems that we do, we do have this, if that is the, the concept you're, you're talking about, mm -hmm. since we do have it, we do have this concept in, in sort of in Western thinking, in Western thinking too. If somebody donates uh, a cake with twelve pieces, and I go there and I take eight of them away, and <laughs> that would be shameless, especially if no one sees me. That would be a shameless action. Everyone would see that's not an acceptable way of behaving. So, mm -hmm. is that what you are referring to, or is it yet another? No, no, this match, no, this match, no, this match you have it, this match you have it, of course you have it, and every culture has it, um, but uh, what I'm saying is this, that as the, the, the example that you said, exactly, exactly bring this up, you said, better nobody sees me, you know, I take eight, you take eight out of the case, this means shame, you know, uh, at the eyes of the other. This is exactly what Ruth Benedict actually says about the Japanese culture. I mean, forget about its correctness, but this is her claim. That shame is something that, uh, if you are alone, you will not, you know, be ashamed. You do it, you know, and you see it as correct or whatever. You are only, you are only ashamed that somebody else watches you. And this is what actually means a lot for Ruth Benedict. That shame is, according to her, of course, a guilt culture is better because guilt means discipline, means, uh, uh, what is it, rule, means law, means legality and everything. And uh, in the shame, you know, culture, again, according to her and many others, uh, let, let me remind you, I mean, uh, the difference between shame and guilt is like this, according to one definition. Guilt means I have done something wrong. Shame means I am something wrong. And thinking that I am something wrong is a bad thing. So you have to you know, remove it. But in the East, it doesn't mean like this. Shame does not mean I am somebody or something wrong. It means my cognizance and my knowledge of my own limitations, my own fundamental you know, limits of being and existence. It's very different from failure, from feeling self-confident, uh, not self and so on. Yeah. Especially, I mean, in Bernard Williams, you know, he, he has got the same point. That, uh, um, um, because usually that has been a criticism leveled against shame that 
person does not care about morality, only cares about whether others watch him or not. This is the meaning of the shame, especially in the Western culture. But that is not the case in the East. <coughs> um, shukran, shukran, Thank you very, very much. I have a collection of points. The first one are kind of on the terminology or some things that you said where I have a reaction to this and then I have a couple of questions. The first thing has to do with the language. You used the French equivalent <coughs> which was not und. And the word we use is this one, on, which has a yeah. very negative connotation. The, the one you used is not so... so uh, I forgot. But when yeah, you said it, I don't know what it's called. Quel dommage. Quel dommage, sometimes, yes. But on, yes, of course. What is the shame, yes. It's a different meaning of... of, of I mean, what you refer to here is the on. Yeah, on, that's true. Um, what I also wanted to say, you said the Declaration of Human Rights has nothing on duty. The French one from 1789 has a whole section on it, especially with contributing to the uh, uh, to the state by paying your taxes. Or like maybe you, somebody could challenge your ideas here as well. And <coughs> then uh, <coughs> maybe just a, a word on Sartre, because in Lettres Néant, he has this. He talks about shame, and he said shame is a kid who is in front of a door watching his parents through the you know the the, the key lock, la serrure. Yeah? And then all of a sudden somebody comes behind and sees him doing this. And that's the moment where he experiences shame. Not because he has done it, but because somebody forces or forced him to become aware in this moment of his actions. So it kind of underlines what you have, like your own definition um, of shame. But maybe you find a, a couple of helpful references there uh, in Sartre. And the questions I have then have, have to do with shame and Sufism. And, and like shame and mindfulness in a way like um, when I read this epistle on Sufism I was amazed by the, the Sufi wise men when they receive somebody whom they like they ask this person by leaving the house to put their feet on, on, on their face you know, they want to be that these people provoke shame in them and as a western reader like this stroked me a lot I would like, like, why is this an idea in Sufism that provoking shame in someone is doing him good? And people who are wise actively search positions where they are ashamed. And the other point where you were trying to make this um, kind of bridging both paradigms in a transcendental third paradigm, or I was wondering where whether the third paradigm does not already exist, where uh, duties and rights are united by citizens that are self-aware, but also aware of the others. And I was thinking of this Buddhist concept of mindfulness, which to me, you know, unified a couple of the points that you mentioned on being desirable for the whole uh, for the whole society, but that only shame could provide. I thought you could find them there. So please go, my <coughs> Okay, thank you. Some of them are... Well, I mean, uh, shame, of course. Again, I, I, I remember, I, perhaps I have to... Uh, emphasize the point that I am not saying that shame is not absent uh, or like for example the concept of duties or obligations not absent but they are marginalized you know and one of the indications that as I mentioned is uh, at least in the uh, philosophical literature you seldom you know find this uh, concept discussed fully except you know quite recently 
But uh, you mentioned Darts, um, you know, he's in the Heideggerian school, you know, he's a post-Heideggerian. And of course, I mean, although Heidegger himself does not uh, I mean, discuss shame fully, but uh, like Agamben, who, who is also in a post-Heideggerian spirit, for them, shame means a lot. It is an existential fundamental state of being. So it's very important. Here, actually, I think um, philosophy comes of its age and is becoming mature in taking shame more seriously. But this is post-Heideggerian. But pre-Heideggerian, of course, I mean, shame, uh, as I said, and you, you, you do not find it. Even in Nietzsche, for example, to whom Heidegger is, uh, you know, uh, uh, is, uh, you know, borrowed many things from him, uh, shame is, is, is a negative thing, you know, according to Nietzsche as well. But in Heidegger, you know, there are, of course, some shortcomings in Heidegger. On the one hand, because he doesn't uh, mention love, you know, as an important, you know, human, uh, um, uh, sentiment or emotion. On the other hand, he doesn't mention shame fully and explicitly. For him, death and the fear of death is the most important thing. And it gives meaning to the existence of uh, human beings. But uh, people like Agamben and uh, others, they try to revive the, the concept of shame, you know, in order perhaps to complement the, the, the philosopher. Therefore, no wonder that Sartre, you know, mentioned shame and this important for him. But that is in the tradition of the Heidegger. And uh, that is not the case, you know, elsewhere, outside the philosophy of Heidegger. Now coming to, uh, to the in mystic, but actually deliberately I, I did not mention anything about mysticism here, because it will, you know, protract and prolong, you know, the discussion. In mystics, mysticism, of course, I'm ashamed, uh, is, is, is one of the most important concepts and it is virtually tantamount with the existence of the Sufi. Sufism is something which means to be shameful of yourself, you know, to be shameful of yourself vis-a-vis God. Most of the time that in the literature of Sufism that you find the word taqwa, which is in the Quran as well, usually it is translated as the fear of God. But it doesn't mean fear, it means, uh, I mean, being shameful in front of God shameful of yourself, or uh, feeling shame, something. Again, I mean, translation here does not do full justice to the, to the meaning. But this is the meaning of, uh, of shame. Therefore, it is at the heart of all mysticism, all mysticism. Shame, you, I mean, take it away from Sufism, and Sufism will be annihilated. So it is very important. And again, it is part of the Eastern culture. And when you mention Buddhism, for example, yes, I mean, I'm not surprised to see that in Buddhism shame again looms large and very prominent because it is there in all religious cultures for that matter shame is very important secularization in the western culture is one of the main reasons that they have marginalized the idea of shame you see man should be proud of himself shame has no place here and this pride has been misunderstood and mistranslated you know misconceived to the extent that shame has been considered a negative concept. You see, this is one of the impacts of the, of the secularization. Whereas, as I mentioned in the outline, in all Abrahamic religions, from the Judaism to Christianity and to Islam, the methodology, methodology of all this, you have got the Adam and Eve, the first sentiment to, to arise and to emerge in them is the sentiment of shame. 
you know, okay, I mean, this is according to the mythology. This means that at least, you know, uh, this comes from very old. And it has got its own roots in religious culture. And uh, it has got a very, very positive meaning. Because it means <coughs> that when you look at yourself, and you place and position yourself in the whole universe, and vis-a-vis your God, you feel that you are nothing. You feel that you are nothing. It, it tells you that you are no God anymore. God is only one, but you are all his servants. From this idea of servitude comes shame, and uh, you know, other related, of course, uh, concepts. So in mysticism, of course, I mean, you should have it, and shame and love usually come together. You know, a lover is a person who at the same time has got shame, you know. It is sometimes difficult to understand it, why uh, a lover should be uh, a person. It is a shame that you leave your beloved and go to another one. It is a shame. So shame and love come together. There is a, there is a story that, uh, you know, you mentioned Rumi as a mystic. Um, there is a story that uh, one of the, you know, uh, people around Rumi was a Christian. You know, the, 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 the friends of Rumi wanted to convert him into Islam, you know. And the Christian person, the young man, he said, I feel ashamed from Jesus. I have been a Christian for 40 years. I cannot, you know, convert to Islam to become a Muslim, you know. This is the meaning of shame, somehow. A kind of attachment to something, you know, which gives meaning to your life and to your personality. Detaching from it makes you ashamed and shameful. It means you are detaching yourself from yourself. So, is shame is a religious concept? It is a religious concept, but it doesn't mean that uh, it cannot be found elsewhere. But it is deeply rooted in all religions. Yes. Yeah. Um, Yeah, that's 
that, that is one idea. The other, which I would like to refer to, is that within IR, international relations, as a subject, mm-hmm. the uh, we are now talking about shaming and blaming. So on the one hand, of course, you are right by saying shaming, we do, we do, don't want to rely on shaming or on shame because um, it is <coughs> leading us away from positive law thinking. Here is more according to what positive law asks. Mm-hmm. So actually, I mean, we may lead towards this understanding of shame, which we are referring to as Western. Uh, but at the same time, in order to get people to adhere to the standards of international law, you need shaming and blaming, as we call it. <coughs> and our problem is that within uh, international relations, we have no clear understanding of what shaming means. Mm. So that this is where you come in again. again. Mm. So so thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your good and important observations. Just let me ask you. Yes, shameless, shamelessness is, is, is a very bad thing. Do you have a word, either in German, English, for somebody who is not shameless? Do you have a word for that? Virtuous. Virtuous, yes. All right, so virtuous is, I'm not sure if that means that, but if you say that, it means that shame is the root of all virtue. Because somebody who is not shameless, so it means he's virtuous. So, but in Persian and in Arabic, yes, but in Persian and in Arabic, we have got a word, a positive word, for somebody who is not shameless and who is always shameful. This is not, you know, shameful here means somebody who just gets shamed for something for temporary time. It is not an estate, you know, in for somebody who is always shameful. This is the, what makes it very different. Somebody who is always shameful means always alert of himself, always alert and conscious of his self. There is no word for this, coming from shame. Whereas in, in the Eastern language, yes, this is coming, because it means that uh, in the shamelessness, it means that uh, the person has violated himself. This is the shamelessness. Now, somebody who has an intact personality has not violated himself, there is no such word coming from shame here in the Latin language. Whereas in Arabic and in Persian, we have it and we stress and emphasize on the word shame there, something with somebody with with whom shame is always there. And it is present in every action that he does and every reaction. There is not such a thing, you know, there. Humbleness? Mm-hmm. Humbleness, humble, humbleness, modesty, it's not, it's not a better thing. Mm-hmm. Yes, humbleness is something which, uh, which, uh, which is close to it. Mm-hmm. It is close to it, yes. But existential, you know, humbleness, of course. Since you know, we have a long list, I would like to have pairs now, Professor Lana and Markus. Uh, thank you very much for initiating this discussion. Just very short. Uh, as he said, uh, um, Hume's negative about shame. Uh, I think I've been studying Hume quite a, quite a lot. I'm not aware of where he actually says anything about shame. Uh, he discusses pride and its counterpart, but there's a different term. I don't know, is it diffidence or something? Mm-hmm. 
But pride in that counterpart is one of the four moral sentiments in the human system. So they are the foundation of all our moral doctrines and very, very important in human system. Um, so I don't think he, he says that shame is um, a negative. Uh, is shame negative? It seems to me that it depends on the aspect of shame that I'm looking at. Shame is emotion. So, as any emotion, there comes a fear with the emotion, a qualia, feeling. Mm. And that fear, of course, is uh, negative. Aristotle would say it is pain. Pleasure and pain, those are the two fears. So, in this regard, it's negative. And also, as any uh, emotion, it's um, um, a, um, what do I say, a propositional attitude. So it has a contempt, a position of contempt. And it seems to me that, at least as we understand the word, uh, shame is always connected to some sort of failure. So that's negative as well. But all this doesn't say anything about the, the function that it has <coughs> for our social intercourse. That might be positive. And also it might have a, a, a positive function for personal development or for our self-awareness. So there are possibly positive aspects as well as negative ones. And I think the, the concept, the very concept, the, the essence of the concept is very firmly tied to negative things like pain, failure, and things like that. That's the essence of the concept. Now, one more very short command. Why uh, is shame um, not a virtue? And I found this is very interesting that there is a, a vice called shamelessness. That's a vice. But there's no counterpart because shame is not the counterpart of shamelessness. Shamelessness is a disposition never to feel shame. And at least not to feel shame in the right situation when you should feel shame. So this is exactly what Aristotle calls a vice. <coughs> so the, the counterpart would be uh, a disposition to feel shame in the in in those situations when you are meant to feel shame, when there is a failure, when there is something that you should be ashamed of. And we don't we don't have a word for that. And that's uh, we, we uh, think is interesting. If we had a word, that would be a virtue. But shame itself is an episodic. I can be ashamed today because my English is poor, and tomorrow I, 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 I could got this. And I can also, of course, uh, I, I can uh, act bravely today, uh, not tomorrow, but if I'm a brave person, that will go on. So that, that is a virtue, it yeah. continues from mm -hmm. that. You cannot be a shameless person. A shameless person? Yes. Shameless person. Yes, but that's the vice. So that's, that's <coughs> also a disposition. Right. But shame is not. Sorry. Thank you. Just, just a word. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Sure. Sure. While listening to you, um, I, I wondered, and this came up already. Uh, 
just a minute ago, uh, and I don't know whether humbleness is the right English uh, term for that, but demut in German, I believe, comes comes very close. Uh, Sorry, what? How you it might be similar to humbleness. I don't know whether humility. And then the one, the, the, the other issue is, and um, we, in a kind of modern language, German language, we use this, this term "fremdschämen," so uh, uh, being ashamed on behalf of someone else or the action of someone other. So does this idea? fit into the context of how <coughs> you use yeah. the term shame also in the Persian language? Is it possible that you can feel ashamed uh, for the behavior of someone else in, yeah. in the meaning you understand? Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm Lana. I'm actually, I, I uh, completely agree with you. Just uh, perhaps to remind you that, uh, of course, in the very well-known book of David Hume, I mean, the inquiries and so on, yes, he does speak about pride and some other emotions, but he has got a, a, a lesser-known book, Elements of Mentality. This is not very well-known, and uh, it was virtually neglected, and I think it was republished and re-edited in 2005. Yes. There actually speaks about shame and so on, so you may look it up if, if you like. Now, uh, yes, and uh, the other thing that I would like to add uh, to, uh, to what you said, your comment, is uh, yes, actually for Hume, yes, it is, uh, you know, among the emotions and uh, he thinks that it is a negative thing because uh, it is because of our own failure and so on. And, uh, uh, you know, the people who, who work in the tradition of Hume, like Martha Nussbaum, and the philosopher whose book on the uh, upheavals of thought, a very thick book, a very hefty one, seven, eight hundred pages, um, there actually he discusses the same, you know, emotion or the sentiment of shame. But he adds that for Hume, it didn't have any shame, a cognitive value, a cognitive function. Whereas for, uh, for Martha Nussbaum and people like her, it has got a cognitive function as well. In the sense that, I mean, it, it brings me now close to the question of Marcus, that you have to be um, able to put yourself in the shoes of, of others and to be ashamed on behalf of others. And this actually uh, makes you, you know, alert to the failures of others. I mentioned here, for example, a Pope who said that he is ashamed because of the behavior of the church. It means that uh, I feel their failure as my failure. You know, emotions always give you this ability, reason or not. And here actually emotions come to help reason. reason this is his failure, okay, not mine. So I have got no causal responsibility for that. But if you have got the ability to consider, to take his failure as your failure, this first of all gives you the, you know, the, the, the possibility to close yourself to the other, to bring the other into the 
morality of yourself. Now, all this actually, as you know, uh, unfold the, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the uh, you know, the, the document for the later, you know, uh, discussions and developments on the morality, like uh, Levinas and many others, bringing others into, into the morality, rather than thinking of yourself. I am ashamed because of myself. This is self, you know, this is a kind of egoism, which goes on well with shame. But I am ashamed because of his or her action. This is mean exact, this means exactly morality. And this shame is different from the shame that it is traditionally used in the literature. Being ashamed <coughs> for the sake of others, putting yourself in the shoes of others. This is absent from uh, Hume, and but uh, now you can find it in in the more uh, you know recent literature that exactly shaming for the sake of others means that you are um, you know the the, the commonality uh, between you in human being in being human and the other gives you the feeling that you can feel ashamed and if you can have such a feeling then you can have sympathy therefore shame and sympathy come together if you can feel ashamed for the sake or because of the action of somebody else. <coughs> Frank and Jan. Thank you very much for your insightful thoughts. Um, what I found very interesting what you said about your third paradigm, mm -hmm. um, the, the, the shame-love paradigm between rights and duties. And uh, it reminds me of of the work of Luc Boltanski and Laurent Thévenot in their French pragmatic sociology, because they also use um, love as a, as, a, as a category. And they, um, one main point of them is that they, that they differ between four uh, patterns or four regimes of actions. And they primarily work on with justice, mm -hmm. that people, um, when they act with each other, they use um, orders of justification, but they, they, but they have also three, um, three different regimes of action, violence, love, and family. Mm. And uh, mm. I think it, mm. it fits to, to, to your point, because um, um, they mm. argue that it's completely different, and when you, when you act in your social life, um, you, you live in different worlds, and you use different um, when you when you argue with your boss or with your girlfriend or with your father, you use different normative principles and and you have different patterns of interaction. Yeah. And um, and I think you're right that that uh, such categories, love, that it's no it it was no um, no an analytical tool or no no category. In, in yeah. philosophy, but also in sociology and, and political science. Yeah. It is already in Aristotle that uh, love overrules justice. You know, when there is love, there is no justice. There is no need for justice. Justice means responsibility and rights. And love means you know, going beyond responsibility and, uh, and rights. Whereas shame is not like that, and that's why I have chosen shame rather than love, in order to build, to construct a third paradise. Yeah. <coughs> Thank you.
This is my last month, by the way. Yes. My days are numbered. <laughs> we go to London together. Okay. <laughs> I didn't really think so much when I came into the room here, but I'm sure you're right, actually. There's a lot in this. Um, I was reminded a couple of years ago, one of the most eye-opening and sincere email exchanges, uh, one of my colleagues uh, wrote to a co-editor in India and, and wrote in the email, it's a shame that. And the reaction from the colleague in India was, was one of the most explosive that I've ever seen. The, the, the fact that shame had been invoked mm. in relation to, even in the most indirect way, That's to right. his thoughts, actions, or whatever, he took enormous offense to. With the result that I, I found myself ever since now always writing, it is unfortunate that. But it's partly because I, I, I still don't fully understand what was going on there. Shame was invested with with with, with, with right. thought that, right. that hadn't been sorted out in my own mind, so I just avoided by using the But anyway, that was just one one one. But um, I, I do say I, I always wonder, worry a little bit when I hear the East-West kind of opposition and, and because of the uh, and, and the called essentializing that that easily brings in. Um, and maybe I've got, I just wonder whether there's just a lot of nuances and, 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 this, and other other things coming through. And you were talking about shame. The, the piece of writing about shame that most comes to my mind is Augustine's Confession. Yeah, it seems okay. to me to be an endless self-flagellation about, about, yeah. about, about, about shame. In, in view of uh, in view of uh, his or human beings' sinfulness, um, so about on the one hand, I, I was wondering as you go through it, uh, different examples of that kind, is it is it really such an east-west thing? Um, also, is there a difference between the the, the duties? And is there a culture that looks on duties as a burden and a culture that looks on duties as a privilege or as a as a Actually, in Augustine and uh, all the you know, you know, fathers of church, 
Yes, the, the concept of shame is, is, uh, is prominent, but that is because of the religious culture. And when I made a contract, not a full contract, not an essentializing contract, but, you know, just put fingers on the differences of the West and the East, just in order to make things, you know, look simpler and more understandable, uh, I mainly mean the modern West. I do not mean the pre-modern West. The pre-modern West was rather, you know, like the East, you know, from the religious point of view. Therefore, the, the concept of shame and all that were, was present, you know, no doubt about it, especially through the religious uh, literature. But in the modern, secularized West, you know, the shame is not as, as it has been before. So, and, and that's why I'm saying that you have to look for it in order to find it in the modern literature, especially in the philosophy. In the secular philosophy, it, it has been given its due yet. And some of the philosophers, as I mentioned, are now uh, reminding us that this concept has to be taken more seriously. For me, of course, both philosophically and culturally, this is important. You know, from the philosophical point of view, it is a very important concept. It says a lot about their personhood and their personality and virtues and, and many other things. Actually, it is a whole family of, of concepts coming together. And culturally, of course, again, it is exactly the same. The, the example you mentioned, that it is a shame. It, it, is, it is a very bad word, you know, in the East. It is a shame. It means that it is shameless to do this. And for, for somebody there, you know, it's, it's very provocative that something very, very, uh, you know, small, you know, makes, you know, things, uh, uh, you know, look shameless, for example. So, this is, you are absolutely right, and we never use such things. Uh, yes, this is, now, uh, <coughs> you know, still I feel that whenever you and other colleagues use the shame, still you use it with others in mind that if somebody else is present, then shame comes up. If nobody is present, then no shame. You know, I may do a wrong thing, but I would not be ashamed, because there is nobody watching me. This is something which, uh, you know, usually comes up. But if it is not the case, then we are now moving to... to so you are ashamed of whom? Of yourself? Of, uh, of God? of um, uh, an assumptional, you know, presence of somebody else, of what? So still, I mean, things uh, come up. If it is something that you are ashamed of yourself uh, because of the failure you have made, so this is a step forward. But now, if you are ashamed, not only because you have done something wrong, you have failed in doing something wrong, but because of, the, uh, of, of your uh, deep you know, existential structure that you have, of the virtues that perhaps you do not have, something which, uh, you know, brings along with you the shame all the time, during the whole lifetime, then that is the shame that I am speaking about. And this is what I think, uh, well, sometimes you do not find. I just wonder whether the absence of uh, shame and the modern Western philosophy is not linked to the uh, impact of secularization within this discourse. 
So yeah, does exactly. it mean does it mean shame is absent in Western society, or does it mean? No, I, I'm not saying the shame. Of course, it is present. You know, because as we are discussing it here. But I think it is uh, it is not a shame culture. Anyway. Mm. Okay. <laughs> I think this much you can say. <laughs> okay, so. <coughs> Would like to put you my list, Daniel, and then your name. Sorry, I forgot your name. Yeah, it's Okay. Yes, uh, thank you for this highly interesting discussion. And as usual, uh, in philosophical discussions, there are so many aspects you want to talk about, and so small nuances you come to think about in the discussion goes on. So I just want to make three very small points. And as Luther Bock, I do not really. Um, well, I want to. I want to ask again if you could clarify what you mean by shame being a negative concept in Western societies. Because I don't, I don't, I don't really. If you see, if you, if you uh, mean by that that if uh, that shame is considered to be a bad thing, something one should not have, then I don't think this is right. I think it's the exact opposite. I mean. Uh, if, 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 if one looks at what is what is what is kind of uh, if, if you take some, uh, someone's shame upon you, what is meant by this? It is meant you should feel shame instead of behaving as you did just before. You should have felt shame, then you wouldn't have done what you did just before. So, uh, so this is kind of it's 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 meant. <coughs> like, um, Shame should be a part of you as it is a part of, of us all. And you somehow failed in not feeling shame. And um, um, so, so this is about the, the, the positive negative point. I'm wondering if in another sense you're not right about saying that in Western society shame is kind of uh, uh, used in a, in a negative way instead of a positive way as you said that shame is a term or is a is a concept in the Eastern societies that it's kind of used stands for itself, and there is no kind of kind of no virtue um, um, in the Western context. Maybe there is this point where that that kind of uh, and this refers to your saying Western societies are right-based cultures, whereas Eastern societies are more obligation-based cultures. I think there is a strong point to that. Maybe <coughs> one can say that shamelessness is fostered in Western societies by then having a rights-based self-understanding. So what I mean by this is um, if, if one understands a rights-based self-understanding, uh, that may, uh, may imply kind of an individualistic worldview, which we, we see ourselves being cut off of social relations, having obligations to others, um, um, uh, having a view on the expectations of others, just seeing ourselves and understanding us as having individualistic rights that we can pursue without without regarding others. So maybe maybe this is maybe this is something you are pointing at by saying that shame is a negative. But uh, this is the question of understanding. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, a second remark refers to the question: um, this when does shame come up? And this is just something I stumbled across in our discussion. Um, uh, you talked about not living up to obligations. You, see, you, you said that um, in the Eastern, in, in Islamic cultures, uh, com uh, coming of age is called the age of obligations. I find highly fascinating. But this, um, I mean, this is probably only one context where shame comes up. If you, if you realize, or if you are afraid of kind of violating your obligations, then you immediately feel shame. By the way, also in Western society. Um, uh, but this is only one dimension. Another dimension is, as you just I, I stumbled across it, uh, 
because of your example of if you're not able to talk English like a native speaker, then you also feel ashamed. This is not an obligation thing. You're not obliged to speak English as a native speaker when you're German, obviously not. So this, there must be something kind of more, more shame related to a more general phenomenon, violating expectations of others or your kind of view of what the others expect of you. And this is also quite common, I think, in Western societies. If you have uh, uh, usually terms as having a low self-esteem, if you th if you if you think in some regards you are constantly because you fail, you're not virtuous enough, or you don't have the capabilities you think others are expecting of you, then you feel constant shame in social interaction. Or some people at least. Just a just a hunch, Lose your face is an Eastern concept. Sorry? Lose your face is an Eastern With regard to the distinction of causal and moral responsibility mm -hmm. and the example of the Pope, mm -hmm. I'm wondering if one might not uh, counter your, uh, your example here, because, I mean, you are, your argument was that the Pope's shame about the priest's child abuse was obviously not a causal responsibility, he cannot feel causal responsible, but it's a moral responsibility. This is sounds intuitively plausible, but on the other hand, what about us not being priests and not being uh, not having uh, not being the pope, seeing the priest uh, doing child abuse? We do not. I do not feel shame about this. I feel indignation. And this is also referring to moral virtues that are breached by some people. And I'm I feel indignation about this. But the pope feels shame. Why? So I'm wondering, maybe this is because he still, although there is no direct cause of responsibility, <coughs> he feels the moral responsibility plus some sort of cause of responsibility because he's the leader of the group, uh, the members of which have committed this. He was not the leader. That can give him later. Sorry. Sorry. What? What is structure here? Oh, okay, I've got the list, so Jan, please. Maybe I had something to the Pope first, because... <laughs> <laughs> maybe Pope, Pope is gone. <laughs> maybe yeah. he just felt shame, because there's no judgment from above, because there's no one who can judge him, or can judge about his guilt, so he's only feeling shame. My question was, could you explain me the difference between your concept and the psychological concept of cognitive dissonance, because in cognitive dissonance you act against the ideal of yourself, and you're judging yourself, and it's a shame that I can't find the author of this concept, I think it's testing it, right, and he says yeah. that um, you solve this uh, cognitive dissonance by adding other and maybe it's easier in the Western world, in the individual world, to add new uh, cognitions to accomplish your self-ideal than it's, uh, in the uh, Eastern world where the self-ideal is pretty much influenced by the social or um, by the surrounding. to a social one if you say you're, you're ashamed that you feel when you don't 
act like the social norms or something because you act against the collective collective idea. Okay, mm. my time. Well, um, I mean, uh, dear Mr. Gauss, your name I'd like it because of the mathematician. <laughs> Less one S. And uh, yeah, I mean, again, I mean, um, I think maybe there is a misunderstanding, and, and I expect it because <laughs> shame is, has been misunderstood all the time between two cultures. Therefore, sometimes maybe um, none of us can, you know, express ourselves, you know, fully. You know, I found in your, uh, you know, uh, uh, your your talk. Most of the time you were using, uh, because of have, I have failed to live up to the expectations of others. I have, and this is shame. This is exactly the meaning of guilt. This is not shame. You know, most of the time, we, you know, and this is actually Benedict's actually, um, uh, contribution to the field, that whenever you think that you have failed, to do something because of the law, because the law tells you, because the expectations of others tell you. This is the, uh, the emotion of guilt, this is not shame. And now you are, you are saying, okay, we have it in the Western culture and you have it, but this is guilt feeling. This is something that you have got an ideal, yes, you have got an ideal. That ideal is either the expectations of others, the eyes of others, because of, you know, what they think about you, what how they judge you, and so on and so forth, and uh, therefore, or perhaps there is a law, uh, and you, you fail, you know, to live up to it. You, you violate it, as you mentioned, to violate the expectation of others. This is guilty. This is not shame. Shame can be, can come because of that. But, you know, sometimes that you have a guilt feeling, shame may, you know, be, uh, you know, uh, added to it, but it is not the shame. So shame is not guilt feeling. It's absolutely different and independent, but these two can be combined together. Therefore, somebody who has got shame, he is not necessarily thinking of any ideal, any law, any expectations, nothing of that sort. You know, nevertheless, the shame comes to him. This seems uh, sometimes ridiculous. Why? I have not violated anything. I have not done any sort of thing wrong. I have not violated the expectation of anybody. Nobody is watching me. Nobody is thinking of me. Never. Why should be I ashamed of something? This is exactly where actually things become a little bit murky and cloudy. That's what I'm saying. So, in what you said, you uh, you know I was you know just uh, thinking and exactly you know, uh, looking at the words you were using. Other expectation. Everything is coming from there. And that was the, the reason why you said that shame is an individualistic, perhaps, uh, mood. Since you do not uh, take into account others, you only take into account yours, and you, uh, you, you feel ashamed of yourself. That is not also the case necessarily. Now coming to, uh, to Pope, you know, uh, God bless him. Now, um, <laughs> look, I mean, Pope, uh, um, he, I mean, Tobias says that he is responsible for the structure. He is not responsible for the structure. He is, he is just because of the structure there. He didn't establish the structure. He, he, he did not set it up. 
maybe the uh, Peter, Saint Peter was, uh, you know, the person who did it, or some other founding fathers of church. He is one of the effects, he is not one of the causes. And actually he came to power after this the child abuse. So he should not feel, you know, causally responsible. But nevertheless, he is morally ashamed. So it's either we should say that he should not be ashamed, what is, uh, it has got to do with him. After all, he is, uh, he is a human being, and although he works in the same establishment, he doesn't have anything to do with the child abuse. But I think it is correct that he felt morally ashamed, and, and in addition to him, we should feel morally ashamed as well. Indignation is not enough. Indignation is okay, we should, because we are human beings as well. Every human being should be ashamed because another human being has done such a thing wrong. So shame means that we feel as the totality of humanity, whether we are a priest or a layman or whoever. This is the meaning of the shame. This is not I mean, somebody who has done a gift, somebody who has violated the law. You should not feel like him because you have not violated the law. But here, of course, as a human being, you feel that you are part of the humanity and that also comes to you, you know, somehow covers you and takes you in. So uh, I think I feel ashamed as well, not only for the insult and the wrongdoing of some priests in the church, but virtually for whatever wrong is being done. And this is actually the gist of the matter when David Chonger says that the market economy is responsible for shortcomings in other countries. Maybe it is not totally responsible, and sometimes it is, but certainly morally con uh, I mean, uh, responsible. And because of that, should be ashamed of what is going on in other countries because of the lavish and uh, you know extravagances of the market economy and market and the uh, liberal economy and so on. And uh, yes, uh, to uh, I think this cognitive. I am not a psychologist, so uh, I have to uh, make my disclaimer here. Yeah, I am not a psychologist, but what you say as the cognitive dissonance, it resonates like part of the meaning of the shame. At least a kind of breakdown, you know, as, as they call it. I mean, in philosophy, a breakdown which alerts you of yourself. You know, this is, this is where shame actually comes in. There you have got a real paradox in your, uh, in your personality. Not necessarily if you are not attuned to the society. A real paradox, either a moral breakdown or a personal breakdown or something. That, you know, alerts you of yourself. Here actually the feeling of shame comes with it. And here actually is when a real personal transformation takes place. Some people would, you know, change their uh, religion. Some people would change their, uh, you know, uh, behavior and attitude towards others. And big transformations take place. Here, at the root of this, is shame. Actually, so I have got sympathy with what you said. If I have understood you correctly. So I've got two questions. <coughs> I would like to close to this. Now, um, Christian and Lauren. Are you also? Okay. 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 So, two other people. Okay. So, Christian and Lauren. Yeah. Uh, I think it's okay. Thank you, Mr. Uh, for this interesting talk. And 
I'm, uh, I still, uh, it's, it's a bit cloudy in my mind, uh, the difference between shame and guilt that you are making. Mm. But usually, in the anthropological, psychological, and sociological literature, uh, shame is associated with the age of around one and a half years, when, when children begin to to uh, acquire this ability of which you also talked uh, of, of taking the role of the other, of putting themselves into the shoes of the other, and so which which is at the end the ability to to look to to look at, at themselves from the perspective of the other, which subsequently then is generalized uh, towards the generalized other, towards society, to look at oneself from the perspective of society, of the social norms, of social obligations and, the, uh, and, and so forth. And, and this, of course, has, has to do with generalizing oneself uh, in, a, in a direction of, uh, as you nicely call it, of, of, as, a, as a being, uh, as being part of humanity Totality, yeah. and uh, <coughs> the whole. And, and this is interesting. And, and uh, if you take the etymology of shame, and it, it's nice to hear that in, in uh, Persian you have the same nearly yeah. the same expression. Yeah. It's, it, it, it's Proto-Indo-European comes from come first, which means to cover, and then if you add an, an S prefix, it, uh, it becomes a reflexive uh, connotation, to cover, to cover oneself. And this is now the direction of my question, um, because if, if you take, for example, much, much of, of our Occidental art, uh, when they represent shame, for example, the shame of Adam and Eve when they were chased out of paradise, they are cover covering themselves. And then we have this expression of, of this emotion as well in, in our Western culture. We, we say, oh no, it's a mistake, or we said something wrong, and so, so we are covering ourselves, and we are also um, making ourselves small. So in, in the media, if you look at the expression of shame, it's precisely that. When I when I was in Senegal doing research, I, it took me quite some time to understand that shame, the expression of shame, which is different, a different word, different root, which is called the uh, the expression of shame is completely different because they have a completely different culture of gazing. So we don't cover ourselves from the penetrant gaze of society or so. In, in, in Wolof culture, they, they do it differently. It would be so too, too far to uh, explain all this. But so, so the expression of shame, and maybe also the, the inner feeling of shame, has to do something with. with and then uh, we come to so a second topic now: visual representations and visual practices. And this this is my question now: How is uh, how is it expressed in, in Persian culture? I, when I remember. What, what Hans Belting, the art historian, has said about about visual practices in Islamic culture, for example, he, he assumes that in in a way the, the covering oneself is generalized. So people would generalize this behavior of covering themselves. It's not all, only present in in, uh, in the veil and, and everything. It's also present in, archi in architecture, for mm -hmm. example. So uh, this would be a, a bit the direction that I understood you. That you have the idea that while while in Western culture um, we have uh, only in, in some special moments we have this feeling of covering of, of, of need of the need to cover ourselves, 
because we feel this penetrant gaze of society while in, in uh, oriental culture you would have more like a generalized um, practice of covering oneself maybe this would, would be kind yeah. of yeah, yeah. so you okay. Only by secondary here and on straight into a fascinating philosophical discussion, so thank you, Prof. Shurison, to all of you who commented. I'm tempted to add to that philosophical and semantic discussion, but I actually want to try to do something else by asking something that I think is very prosaic. I want to ask or comment and then ask what work does shame do? What work does shame do in itself and in intersubjective relations? Is it about, as I'm thinking I might be catching, about levelling, about making one vulnerable to another, about relating and about responsiveness and therefore obligation and responsibility? So that's my, do I ever want to ask, do I have that right? Uh, or are there other dimensions that uh, need to be brought out further, or is it just what I'm saying just wrong? Then the second prosaic question I have is, how do we cultivate, support, encourage this kind of sentiment, emotion, for the kind of good of political cooperation, social order, those types of things, both at a quite interpersonal level, but perhaps right through to uh, broader international relations as was pointed to before. Yeah. Okay, you may. Yeah. Um, well, uh, thank you, Christian, for uh, for the philology you, you gave us about the shame and the meaning of the covering and things like that. And yes, this brings us to a real cultural, you know, product. First of all, uh, it gives a very good, uh, you know, meaning interpretation to the veiling which is always symbolism. It has been sometimes uh, described as uh, something to do with the identity of the Muslim women and so on. But uh, as you said, and it has been perhaps discussed for others, it has got a much more you know, symbolic meaning and much more deeply cultural meaning. And that is exactly the meaning of, uh, of shame and covering oneself or hiding, which is not necessarily hiding, but to some extent, you know, um, uh, having your existence or your being, you know, surrounded by a kind of protection, which means uh, uh, wailing. Also, um, not only here, in, in the literature, <coughs> for example, um, Persian is a very poetical language. And uh, this has been said, you know, many times that it is not good for scientific you know, things because it's not very explicit, words are not very well defined. But it's very poetical, and poetical in the sense that uh, it is interpretable, you know, in various ways. And so you can hide or cover, you know, your, your intention under the word. To the extent, and this is not only because of the shame, and it, but also because of the political atmosphere, you know, that you have to be very careful how to say things, you know, in order not to be, you know, uh, pinpointed. So it is a, a, a language which has got, it's a shameful language, if you like. Shame is embedded in it, and it has uh, provided some sort of protection for things which are there, and a protection for you, 
and uh, also it is a shameful language in the sense that um, you know using bad words uh, is very difficult you know it is a shame you know it, you, you you cannot you know usually frame you know you know very obscene sentences so these are of course in the uh, the shame and also in in the uh, sexual relationships of course most of what is, uh, is is not acceptable to Eastern, you know, culture. It comes under the concept of shame. They they do not, uh, you know, like feel it or see it as something um, with shameful, you know, for the explicit, you know, uh, sexual relations in the uh, in the Western culture. They they take it in the Western culture. So long as you have got a a, a rule and you do not violate it. You are not shameful for that, and it is what it is. There. there is only a guilt culture, you know. Okay, it is allowed by law, and you do not violate the law, so you can have all these things. But there, actually, apart from the law, which are there, there are something which are governed by shame. It is not only because of the law. So here, actually, you feel the difference between the two. Um, <coughs> To the last question, um, what is the function of shame? I think the function of shame comes up uh, especially with respect to responsibility. I think I discussed this, I mentioned it, and of course it needs much more elaboration. But I think uh, there is, uh, I am not saying antagonism between rights and shame, but uh, if you look at the paradigm of shame, which I am now constructing, asking too much is shameless. <coughs> Even if you are you claiming too much, it's shameless. And failing in your responsibility obligations also is shameless. Therefore, shame has got a double function in performing your duties and not, you know, overusing your your rights. Okay, somebody who is always claiming, who is not thinking of his responsibilities. He is doing too much and in, the, in the business of rights. So he must be, you know, we have to make him aware to be more shameful and not to claim too much. On the other hand, if you fail to, to do your uh, duties, that is also something which uh, uh, invites shame, you know, to come in. It is shameless to, to be, uh, you know, not to perform your duties. I think responsibility and shame and rights come, you know, very, very close to each other, and one can be defined on the basis of the other. Now, in the international, global level, I think this is the um, the, the function of this uh, this center to explore it and to perhaps find it, and I will learn from them how to, you know, apply it to the international level cooperation. Thank you very much. Two last questions here in the Um, um saying uh, <coughs> uh, is a positive uh, concept, but uh, I think still it cannot be positive because in the sense that it cannot be constructive and it cannot lead you to do something. You, it can make it may stop you to detach from master or God or Lord, or uh, in your own words, but um, it cannot let you to expect something, and 
maybe it is a source of oppression uh, in our societies because uh, the empty space of this God can be replaced by authority and uh, I want your opinion. Okay. Hi. <laughs> well, actually, listening to you, I have to remind myself that I should translate all the time when you mention the word shame into my own language with the Eastern concept and especially the Buddhist concept of shame mm-hmm. in order to understand you. And I translate it back and forth, and there I come up with the question that I don't know, maybe you find it funny. When does shame start in your concept? Because as a Buddhist, I can feel, or you correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> I can feel shame already when I start thinking of the idea and not having done it yet. I, I, just, I just think of doing it and I feel ashamed and I don't do it. And if you ask me what I'm ashamed of, I'm ashamed of the karma concept. I was ashamed of it, thinking of the idea and I don't do it. So I want to ask you, when, according to you, <coughs> according to you, does shame start? Because as, as we have uh, discussed so far, shame starts here after you do something, or even in some person, when you do something and you get caught and you feel ashamed. Yeah. Well, as to the first question, I don't think that shame and repression come necessarily uh, together. I think I had here, you know, the example of Pope being ashamed of what the church under him has done. This doesn't come from any oppression, this doesn't come from authority, he is the authority himself. But nevertheless he feels ashamed because as I said he puts himself in the shoes of the people who were uh, who have been uh, wronged or perhaps who have done the wrong thing and because of sharing the common humanity so he feels that there is a, a serious shortcoming in humanity perhaps that such a heinous crime has been uh, ever you know, committed. I think uh, if there is an authority here, it's a moral authority. It, it comes from the higher self, which orders you, commands you to be ashamed of something which somebody else even has done, uh, not you yourself. And, uh, you know, as to Rakhchanuk, well, I mean, uh, shame has got different occasions to, to come up. Uh, there are familiar occasions with everybody, you know, who has done the wrong thing or perhaps has had some failures, failings in doing things. But existentially speaking, shame actually is born when you think about yourself in earth, rather than your deeds. You know, because again, guilt has got to do with deeds, you know. And this is what, you know, usually the psychologists say. For a Western man, so long as I have not done a bad thing, I am intact, I am fine, I am okay. But when I do something bad, then of course I have to fix it, I have to, to repent, I have to feel ashamed and so on and so forth. But uh, somebody who goes further from this, even when there is nothing wrong he has done, still he has got some, you know, to blame himself because of some uh, real existential fundamental shortcomings in his existence. Not because of others, not because of even God, but because of He Himself. So from the time that you encounter yourself, and this is a higher order actually action, when you encounter yourself, shame is born, and the rest come later on.
thank you very much to all of you for this wonderful, interesting and interesting discussion, but also thank you to Rouge. I feel honored for this interesting talk. And now we have um, uh, just five minutes break and then we continue with the questions of visual representation. So please stay in the room, just let some air in and we'll continue. Thank you. Thank you.